listener production. When the phone stopped ringing, it absolutely shook me to the core because I didn't realise how addicted I'd become to fame. And I felt ashamed. I felt so ashamed that something is so hollow and superficial as C-grade celebrity status had got its claws into me. And when that was threatened and questioned, it really rocked my confidence like you wouldn't believe. I was in my 50s and just feeling invisible. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Ian Dixon, better known as Dicko, is best known for his role as the tough love judge on Australian Idol. Over three million people tuned in to its first grand final show at the Sydney Opera House. And Idol produced some of our biggest stars, including Casey Donovan, Jess Malboy, Guy Sebastian, Shannon Knoll and Courtney Act. But Dicko is far more complex and compelling than the person we tuned into each week. He is a friend of mine and we've had many frank conversations over the years. We've been on the telly together as well as starring in a pantomime where we had to sing and dance and yes, he was far better at it than me. Now, just to let you know, we do cover some heavy topics in our conversation, including drugs and sexual abuse, something which Dico opens up about in this conversation. Oh, Dico. Gee, it's good to see you, to clap my eyes on you. It is wonderful to be seen by you as well. You're still as gorgeous. Oh, you're still as lovely. (laughs) The silver fox. The silver fox. (laughs) But you are a silver fox and you're very charming. I've always found with you, whenever I've caught up with you, had a good chat with you, there's this lovely kind of charm and ease with the way you communicate with people. I want people to feel comfortable. It's odd because most people in Australia will know me as the straight-talking bastard judge on Australian Idol, the original and the best series, of course. I guess when I first started on Australian television in that hard-judging role, the Australian Simon Cowell, if you like, there are articles about me in the paper with one headline I remember, is this the most hated man in Australia? And I thought, oh, <laughs> I'm not sure that's what I signed up for. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But yeah, I think people are surprised that I don't try and tear people down 24-7. I, you know, I do enjoy people. I do enjoy meeting people. Myself and my wife have always wanted to chat to anyone. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, everyone's got a story. So yeah, thank you. (laughs) And that's the thing. Everyone does have a story. You have a fascinating story. Let's just pick up on that Australian Idol time where you were sort of known, as you say, as the blunt and brutal judge. Did you feel a pressure that that was the role that you had to fulfil and keep being? Um, Yes. Yes, there was a lot of pressure to deliver that. It's a hard one to reconcile, Jess, because I have to realise, you know, I said some pretty awful things to people's faces and I actually meant every word of it. 
which is an awful thing to admit. But the show did rely on, on a certain amount of ritual humiliation, even though the I'm sure the producers would say, no, no, no. Thousands of people are queued up to audition. There were a set of auditions before they came to the bit before the judges, and those auditions were designed to take the middle out. So the only contestants who made it to the camera and the judges were the really, really good and the really, really bad. Now, why would you put really, really bad singers in front of judges if you're not going to make fun of them? That was baked into the format of the Australian Idol show, and I willingly put the black cap on and was the Grim Reaper, you know. And I made myself a promise that I would say exactly what I would say about these artists, these performers, if I was in the confines of a record company boardroom, where the conversation can get a little bit gnarly and cruel and mean-spirited, if I'm honest. And yeah, I, I don't think it was the fact, a lot of the time it wasn't what I was saying, it was the fact that for the first time on television, someone was saying this to someone else's face. And that's quite uncomfortable. You can't sing, mate. It's a really, really awful voice. You haven't got the best voice. Honestly, no chance. No one's going to want to listen to you, okay? Really? You don't sing very well. In a parallel universe, I'm sure you would stand a chance of being Australian Idol, but that was just way too wacky for words. That voice should come with a government warning. Oh, sorry. That was horrible. Was there a time, though, or ever a time when you thought, oh, I've gone too far, or I really don't feel good doing this? Well... I only signed on for one series because I didn't know whether I was going to like it and I thought it might drag me away from my first love, which was working in the record company. And then after the first series, Channel 10 executive said, we're going to re-sign. And I said, well, look, I'm not sure I want to, actually. There were some really gnarly things that had happened. After the first series, the surgeon sent me a letter about his daughter suffering from anorexia. And he said, after the Paulini comment, where I, I made note of her weight in that gold dress, she spiralled out of control and was admitted to hospital and was virtually on death's door. And he said, I'm holding you singularly responsible for this. Paulini, this is really hard for me to say, but it's, it's the real world. You should choose more appropriate clothes or shed some pounds. I'm sorry. <laughs> And I guess for the first time in my life realised that my words carried a weight. And I spoke to my friend who's a clinical psychologist. She said, you may have been the trigger. I'm not suggesting for one second you're the cause of this girl's anorexia, but you may have been the trigger that pushed her over the edge. And that's a hard thing to understand. That's a hard one to take. I'm a father. I've got two girls. I cannot imagine what it would be like to see your little girl wasting away in a hospital. So to have that pinned on me was pretty tough. So for Idol 2, I said, look, I'm not sure I'm ready well, for let's it. let's unpack that feeling then for you. How then did you reconcile that? Um, I rang him up and I think he was surprised to hear from me. And I just said, look, I'm terribly sorry to hear about your daughter. And he said, I don't want you ringing me. I don't want you ringing her. I don't want you getting in touch with us because things may get legal. And I went, right, okay, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And I don't know what to say. I really, I didn't. I was floored. When someone's accusing you of killing their daughter, that's pretty heavy stuff. So um, I don't know how I dealt with it. 
The fact is I did go back on Idol and I was just as straight talking, so maybe I didn't learn a thing out of that whole episode. But surely there must be a part of you, the fact that you're able to talk about it in this way now Mm -hmm. shows that you have an insight into what your words meant and the impact that they had on people. Yeah, but then there's another side of me, Jess, that just thinks, well, hold on a cotton-picking moment. I can understand series one, which was out of the blue, being a surprise to people when they turn up and got one between the eyes from the pommy. But in series two, it was an enormous institution by then. Everybody knew Australian Idol. They knew how it worked. And it was the biggest show on TV. You know, we used to regularly rate two and a half million on those Sunday shows, which is huge. That was, you know, only 20 years ago, but how television has changed in terms of the raw numbers. I was a household name. I had to come to terms with that. But people turned up for series two. Surely they knew what they were getting into. So I don't know how people could complain about getting one between the eyes from the pommy on series two when they knew what they were stepping into. So, tricky. I don't know. Look, as I said before, I don't like putting people down. I'd rather pump someone's tyres up than let them (laughs) deflate them. But that role required someone to be a straight talker. And I must admit that everybody does get a rosette for turning up these days. And I know that makes me sound a little bit blunt, but if you want to be excellent at something, you need to take some criticism, you know. If you, you if you want to improve, you've got to start with the home truths. And let's face it too, there are some people, I'm one of them, who cannot sing. So why delude yourself that you're going to be a recording artist when you can't sing? The other weirdest thing for me, a lot of these contestants would turn up with their family and groups and supporters and, you know, and it was great for the filming the backstories. They'd all be cheering them on. The contestant would come in, would get slammed by me because they couldn't sing a note, you know. And then occasionally I'd go out and I'd be harangued by these families saying, you don't know what you're looking for. And I'd say, look, I'm perfectly willing to understand that your daughter's tone deaf. I can't believe all of you are. Why would you let her come? Why would you <laughs> well, let... yes, why that's right. Why on earth would you endorse someone so unbelievably talentless to come along and put themselves through this when you know she's rubbish? You can't all be tone deaf. It's impossible. And what did they say? Oh, people don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to be told their kids are rubbish, do they? No, you know? of course not. No, of course not. I must say I'm a little bit that brand of parent who does like to give everyone a prize or sure. a present or... Because you... you're gorgeous. <laughs> That's your brand. <laughs> My brand is a little bit gnarly around oh, the edges. But not brand. I mean, let's talk about that brand. Yes, your brand, I suppose, on Australian Idol was being brash and blunt, but there's a lot more to you than that. Oh, there always is. There's going to be a lot more to everyone. Carl Sanderlands, who I think you spoke to, his brand is, you know, he's brash and he's gnarly and everybody asks me about Carl and I say, look, spend half an hour with Kyle and tell me you don't like him because he's incredibly engaging, he's funny and he's kind. You know, he's actually a kind person. You know, he's got a huge ego, which can be quite debilitating sometimes. I would tell him to his face. But he's a lovely man, you know, so it's never going to be just that. It's like, I used to liken it to being a boxer. Boxers don't run around the street punching people. Boxers put gloves on, enter into a bout, and in that controlled environment, they punch each other. And that's what I did. When I stepped into Australian Idol, I had to inhabit the role 
of the cold, hard music industry executive delivering the facts as I saw them. And that was it. And then when I got out of makeup, I was lovable Dicko again. <laughs> Everyone gets a rosette with lovable Dicko. <laughs> and so the music industry Dicko, mm. what was that like? Because you had an incredibly successful career working with some of the biggest names in the world mm-hmm. before you came to prominence in Australia on mm-hmm. Australian Idol. What is that world like? For someone like me, it sounds so glamorous and incredible. It was really glamorous. I was fortunate to be in the music industry in the heyday, really, in the 80s when we started convincing everyone that they had to buy the same album they had on vinyl on CD. So the industry became very rich in that decade and that's when a lot of the excesses presented themselves. So loads of A-list parties, limos, business class travel, drugs, you know, groupies, all of that. And yeah, it was exciting. Tell me more about that then. What do you want to know, the groupies, the drugs or the money? All of it. Right. Well, yeah. I never took drugs as a kid, actually. Not even when I was at university. I was a late starter because I loved my sport so much. I was a real late starter. And then when I met my wife, Mel, and she was in the record industry, her first marriage had fallen apart because of drugs, basically. So Mel was pretty steadfastly anti-drugs and has been all of our relationship for 37 years. I had my first line of cocaine when I was like 27 and I thought, oh my word, I've been missing out on this. And there's a lot of, um, just everyone in the record industry seemed to take cocaine and, and then ecstasy came along. wasn't so fond of that, dabbled in it because it's the only way, frankly, you can listen to techno and make sense of it. Oasis, didn't you look after no, Oasis? No, for some reason that's found its way into my Wikipedia and I've never worked with Oasis and I've never said I've worked with Oasis. You know, rubbed shoulders with them once or twice and they were an amazing act. But look, I used to kick myself all the time, Jess. I was from Birmingham, from a council estate and ended up working at a fairly senior level in the music industry. Got paid a lot of money to hang out with rock stars, go backstage, travel around the world with them. And I thought, this doesn't happen to people like me. The people where I come from work in car industry. They work in factories. They didn't hang around with Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. And I thought, wow, this is just the best thing ever. Oh, I have had a blessed life, Jess. I really have. And I hope it continues. So what was it about you? You said you couldn't imagine that you would have been in this world that got you into that music world. Well, it was my wife. She was a publicist and um, I was a window cleaner when she met me, which is odd because if you saw the state of our windows now, you'd never know. Yeah. <laughs> If they, what I say, the cobbler's kids are always the worst shod. So. Like, yeah, doctor's kids too. Yes, they exactly. never yeah. go to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of fell into the industry and became a music journalist and then became a publicist. And people have said of me that I was never starstruck. I love musicians and I love artists. I have my heroes. But my old boss said to me, you never get overawed by artists. You always believe you're as important as them. And it puts them at ease because, you know, they can't kind of pick you out. And I think that's the nice way of him saying that I had ideas above my station. (laughs) So no one, there was no one who actually made you starstruck? No, no, not really. No, I I thought, I'm your mates. I'm mates with Pearl Jam. Look, it was a bit odd. Sort of got in a lineup to meet Michael Jackson once and you weren't allowed to touch him or look him in the eye. And that was a bit odd. You go, well, I'm never going to be on your level. Never going to live in a 
Neverland with a monkey called Bubbles, you know. Could you talk to him? Were you allowed to talk to him? No, not really, no. It was like a Royal Variety performance when they come past and, you know, just a bit of a glance. Just a very odd, odd dude all around. But I got to meet people like Billy Joel and hang out with him for a few days and realise what an absolute down-to-earth lovely man he was. Dave Grohl, one of the most beautiful people in the record industry. Uh, You know, I spent a week in Los Angeles with the Foo Fighters and Dave when we signed them to BMG. And that was spectacular. That was so much fun. You just think, what am I doing here? How did I end up here? Any diva sort of behaviour from them? From me. (laughs) From you. Were you the number one diva? Yeah, of course. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, look, I had a band called Warrants threw a burger in my face once because I delivered them the wrong burger. So I ended up with a fillet of fish in my face, which wasn't very nice. I did shirt front him. Oh. I think he was a bit surprised that, you know, I don't think record company people in America, you know, grabbed them by the scruff of the neck and uh, threatened them. So he would never have thrown another burger in your face, No, probably. I think he learned a lesson that day. Mind you, it's hard to take these guys seriously. They've, you know, got makeup and glitter and, you know, the eyes were stinging from the hair lacquer. <laughs> But that's not so bad if there's only one person who throws a burger at you. Oh, no, look, Christina Aguilera, she was a tough one to deal with. I remember being with Westlife, who um, were a big, big boy band that Simon Cowell signed, and we had them playing at Hyde Park. It was their big, big debut show after they'd had all these number one hits. We hired a booth for them at this swanky club after, and they had never been there because they were Dublin boys, and they felt like they'd arrived. So we went in there and started ordering drinks for them in this booth. And then Christina comes in with her bouncer, looks around this half-empty place and decides she wants to sit in our booth and makes us move. No. And she was on our label as well, so I thought this could turn ugly. So I kind of had to talk the poor boys into moving two booths along just so Extina could have her privacy. Oh, yeah, How that was ridiculous. a bit crappy, wasn't it? I mean, that's yeah. that's sort of pathetic. But do you think it points to people then they don't feel terribly good within themselves, or they need to feel better by putting other people down? I would say there's an element of that. It's look. Do you know what? It must mess with your head being a rock star or a pop star when you've got that level of adulation. And I know what it's like. The entourages that used to come in with American artists were just beyond ridiculous. Like there'd be. PAs, PAs, PA, and then the makeup artist would have a roadie. And and it was just, you know, sometimes some of these American acts would come in with entourages of like 30 people and they'd turn up and you'd have seen this in radio stations. People turn up for an interview and they've just got a cast of thousands. You go, I wouldn't mind, but you're just a rapper, you know. (laughs) You're not even playing an instrument. You don't need a guitar, Rodi. <laughs> yeah, what you are need you someone doing? to carry your gun, obviously. You know. <laughs> but what about? I mean, you say it messes with their head. Did it mess with your head? Being famous, yeah. I think I stopped being famous or useful to the broadcast media industry about seven years ago. I think got sacked from my radio job because I wasn't very good, and the phone stopped ringing, and I kind of realised. I'd had a good run for someone with no discernible talent. You know, I'd been on TV and media and earned a lot of money for about 15 years. I knew it was going to run out at some point and I probably stretched it five years longer than I should have done. But yet, when the phone stopped ringing and I stopped working in media, it absolutely shook me to the core because 
I didn't realise how addicted I'd become to fame. And I felt ashamed. I felt so ashamed that something is so hollow and superficial as C-grade celebrity status in Australia had got its claws into me. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'd even scour the internet to look for mentions of myself. And that's just awful to admit now. I just, my skin's crawling even telling you that. But I'd just wrapped up my importance and value as a person in this public figure. And when that was threatened and questioned, it really rocked my confidence like you wouldn't believe. You know, I was in my 50s and just feeling invisible. We moved to the country around that time, and I think that was part of it, Jess. I think if I'd have still been valuable to the media industry, there's no way I'd have left Sydney. But I just thought it was a good place to hide and to not feel so embarrassed about not being valuable anymore. I think being in this small town in Queensland, Mullaney, where, where I love it, I've got a passion for it, it really helped me on my journey back to become a normal person. And I can't think of anything worse than doing a TV show now. I think the idea of being on a TV show and becoming famous again doesn't really appeal to me anymore. So, Listening to you describe that sense of feeling invisible, mm. you talk about the shame that you feel around that. But for a lot of people, they don't even have to be on television, but often when you get to that particular age or point in your life, you do feel invisible mm. because suddenly it's like, well, where is my worth or where mm. is my value? I've only just realised since I became old how ageist we are in the entertainment industry, and but probably in other industries as well. I manage artists now and I feel so grateful that these young people allow me to work on their careers. But I also know as an older regional manager, and also that dickhead off the telly, I have to pedal three times harder just to keep up with the young, hot metro managers. Sometimes when you're out with your artists, you just feel like, oh, I really should go home now. I should leave the kids to it, you know. It does look a bit embarrassing sometimes when you're the oldest dude in the club, you know. You just look like a creep, really. <laughs> But you see, you've got all this life experience. So yes, leave the club early, mm. but then have your life experience to give them those insights and advice. But let's talk more too about that sense of the phone not ringing. Mm -hmm. That's something I can relate to. Mm -hmm. I, I understand that feeling of when so much of your life is about your title or who you are mm -hmm. and how people perceive you and see you. And when that no longer happens you can feel incredibly lost for a time mm. and depressed. I really struggled. What did you struggle with, though? Well, I struggled with, well, you, who you, was well, I? You had a pretty public altercation with your work, didn't you? It wasn't that the industry just backed away from Jess Rowe, was it? And you are quite picky as well. Oh, not picky, you, just You are very choosy. You are very selective about what you do. And I think that's great. But I don't get the feeling that the industry has ever turned its back on you, Jess. But it's all about perception, isn't it? And so I felt it had because the phone didn't ring anymore. No one was calling me. I'd find myself giving my CV to the butcher when people would say <laughs> to me, weren't you the lady on the television? Mm. 
have you retired? And I'd be like, no, I haven't retired. So That's an annoying question, isn't it? It is so annoying. Yes, like, no, I haven't so retired. So you've retired up here, Dicko. No, actually, I'm working harder than I ever have yeah. for less money, all right? Shut up. So why I share that bit about mm. myself is that I think it is about perception, that you felt as if the industry mm. had turned its back on you. I actually thought I've just been found out at last. I thought... They've finally seen the emperor with no clothes on. That's what I thought. I didn't think they went, oh, we don't need him anymore. I just thought they thought, actually, he's not that good, is he? And I've failed a lot. I've made a lot of money out of failure. You know, it's been quite lucrative for me, being paid out of jobs, you know, like let go with time left on your contract. Once the bruised (laughs) ego is gone, you go, what, you're telling me you're still going to pay me for the next year? And I don't have to turn up. But that's life, though, failure. I think, yeah. how do we learn otherwise? It's not realistic to ever be at the top of your game all the time or fabulous at everything, at the, every moment. The hardest thing for me is realising that I still feel like I would be a bit ashamed to get a proper job. Like, people in Mullaney, a lot of guys I work with have retired. They work in the IGA and stuff. And I'm like, that actually looks fun. But I think I'd weird people out with my little IGA hat on, my IGA polo shirt. I don't know. I mean, can someone like me do a normal job now? Could Why I actually, not? Could I be the lollipop man at the local school? You know? Would you get joy from doing it? I think that's I think the so. key. I actually, there's a lot of work I'd like to do. I'd like to cook. I would love to work in a cafe. Do I'd it. Lo- I'd love to go and work in a Why cafe and cook. Why not do it? I don't know. I just think it would be a bit odd. Really? Oh, but come on. Life, I learn more and more the older I get. Mm. It's too short. So what if it's odd? Is that because you worry about what people think? Yeah, I'm shocking at worrying about what people think. I'm right the opposite to my wife. I I had this explained to me that the difference between extroverts and introvert is not whether they're the life and soul of the party. Clinically, apparently, an extrovert is someone who bases all of their life decisions on what other people think of them. Whereas an introvert base all of their decisions on how they see themselves. And that's my wife completely. Mel, she couldn't give a monkeys what people think about her. She makes all of her decisions based on how she feels. I'm the total opposite. I just feel so visible and so exposed that most of my decisions are based on how it's going to look to other people. Which is shameful. Honestly, I feel hey. like I feel like a worm now. No. I hope you're gonna pump me up and make me feel good before I leave. <laughs> but I'm gonna let's... go straight to a bar. You've been very open about your battle, if that's the right it's word, not with a alcohol. Do you know what happened? I've liked to drop in a bucket. I do like a drink. And when I first hit the public eye. When I first became famous, it did mess with my head a bit. And I reckon I used to self-medicate a lot more because I started drinking very heavily after Idol. Just because if I'd go into a pub to meet people, everyone would turn around and stare at me. And I would slam down three drinks really quickly just to power down. So I didn't care if people were staring. I used it to self-medicate. And so I still drink heavily, but now I binge on abstinence as well. I couldn't do what I do and be effective for my artists if I was pissed every night. But I'm still, if I'm going to drink, I do like to drink heavily, but I'll take six weeks off. 
Like I'm trying to lose weight at the moment for when I reach 60, I want to be a certain weight. And I can't do that while I'm drinking. So I'm not drinking at the moment. I've completely turned my back on alcohol since Christmas. However, I saw an old mate that I hadn't seen for ages last night in Sydney. So I had a drink. So I'm not completely prescriptive about it. I just, I binge on alcohol and then I binge on abstinence and that kind of works for me. I don't like moderation. Well, you can't do moderation by the sounds of it. I'm hopeless. Yeah, my wife can have one drink. So if I'm not drinking, I'll make her a gin and tonic at night and I'll smell it and i hand it over to her and that's good enough for me. So, I mean, would you describe yourself then as an alcoholic? On and off, yeah. If I'm in a period of drinking, I will plan my day around whether I can have a drink or not, which sounds like an alcoholic, doesn't it? But then if I'm not drinking, I'm absolutely fine with it. What stops you from not drinking at all? I do like the social aspects. I like the feeling, I like the buzz I get from it. I like the fact that it just turns my brain down to mood lighting, which is a lot better for me. And, yeah, and I like the taste of it. So it would be very hard for me to turn my back on all of that. I did for three years. When I was doing radio in Melbourne, I had the whole day to get pissed and would. And so I was living on my own in Melbourne. I'd go and find a lunch with some mates And I realised towards the end of that year, I was getting through four bottles of wine a day just for myself. And I thought, that's probably a bit too much. So I said to Mel, I'm going to give up on Jan 1. She went, yes, of course you are, dear. And I gave up on Jan 1 and I didn't drink for the whole year. Actually, Chrissy Swan, who I was doing radio with, she went, look, I have to say to you, you were much better at radio when you were drunk. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) It's true, though. I actually was. When I turned up to do my slot with a hangover, I was looser and probably much better for FM Breakfast Radio. Probably no good for the ABC. But, yeah, I wasn't as good or as much fun, apparently. But again, Mel said I was, I was a lot more boring in that first year. Isn't that interesting? Because that's then about what other people think of you as opposed to what actually might be best for you or how you feel? I had a great year. That first year of sobriety, myself and my business partner, who you know well, David Wilson, we got our show up called Can of Worms. So we actually got that show commissioned. It was actually that show that drove me back to drink because I was the host for that first year. And then at the end of it, I realised that I wasn't good enough to host it. Andrew Denton was our partner and we had it on Channel 10. And all of these guys more or less said, look, you're not cutting it. And I didn't realise that, but all of them felt this way right from the start of the show. And I was furious because I actually didn't need to host that show. Someone else could have done it. I was happy to be a creator and a producer, but they kind of watched me slowly fail. And I don't know, I don't know what I was doing wrong or what I could have done better, but I just wasn't up to it. And I found it so utterly devastating and disappointing that I wasn't good enough to host my own show. So I went to England to see my daughter with Mel, stayed in the hotel room in London. Mel got her new iPhone out and she was playing with it and she said, I've just checked on my phone. You haven't had a drink for a thousand days. And I went, well, that's too bloody long. Let's get pissed. So I ordered up some champagne and got back on it there and then. But was that because, though, you think you failed? I don't know. Look, as I said, I'm no stranger to failure. So 
I don't know if that's a big trigger. I was just embarrassed. I'll tell you what I've, I felt so icky about. It wasn't the failing, because I've got no problem with that. It was knowing that all these people around me knew I was shit at this and didn't say anything about it. And Did- I carried on presenting that show. You were on it. You but were on you one were of our best episodes. On it. You I don't were great know. Look, on I, it. I don't know if I was, Jess. Look, to be honest, when I saw Chrissy Swan, who took over from me, when Chrissy took over, I went, yeah, that's a bought one. That's good. She's great. I'm a particular type of person. I don't know if I'm that sort of a presenter. I don't know what I've got to offer TV, frankly, at the best of times. I thought I could handle a conversation like that. When I look back on it, I probably wasn't right for the show. I just wished everyone would have told me, that's all. But did people tell you along the way? Andrew Denton got a few people in to try and help me read autocue. I didn't think I was that bad at it, but apparently I was shit ass. And I, there's a skill to reading autocue. As a newsreader, I think you'd probably be good at it, Jess. I didn't know when to raise my eyebrow or breathe, apparently. So I don't know. I thought I was good at reading, but apparently I was shocking at autocue and just really awkward. And apparently the network and Denton and even my manager, all people, they all knew that I wasn't cutting it and was going to have to face the chop at the end of this. I just wish they'd have said earlier. Look, maybe they sent me little signals and I just totally misread them because I was up myself so much. But I'm not blaming them for me drinking, you know. But yeah, that it was after that failure and fall from grace that I went back into drinking with a vengeance. You're so tough on yourself, though. Uh, actually, I really dig myself. But the only way I can allow myself to really approve of myself is if I'm honest about myself as well. That's the price of entry for that particular emotion. That's what gets me in the game. I'm prepared to back myself completely, you know, to the point of semi-narcissism sometimes. But the only way I can do that is if I'm really honest. Talking about now love, because you've mentioned Mel, Mm -hmm. you say my wife, but you guys aren't actually married. No, we know we'd never um, bothered. When I first met her, she was out of her relationship, but still married legally. And then eventually that divorce came through. But we had kids by then. And we used to say to our kids when they were young, we'd say, how about if mum and dad get married? And they would lose their minds and say, no, that's disgusting. Because I think if kids watch a lot of Disney, a marriage always happens at the end of the Beauty and the Beast or Snow White. It's a sea change for someone, isn't it? And marriage equals change. I don't think our kids ever wanted that sort of change. So we used to try and bribe them with, well, you can have these beautiful bridesmaid dresses. And they were, they used to scream and cry and say, no way. And then it just got to the point where there was no point. We kind of ran out of time, really. And the necessity receded as well. She's my girl. I love her to bits. She's just been my rock. I wouldn't have achieved anything without her. And we're so happy together. We laugh at the same off-colour jokes. and We love the same things. You know, we chalk and cheese in many ways. Yeah, she's great for me and just a wonderful mother. And she's just got a great... She's quality, my missus. She's just absolute bloody quality. And it sounds like, too, she's let you be you. Well, she's had to, really. But she's great. I mean... When I first did Idol, I said, oh, what, look at this, what's going on? She said, well, look, you've always been a bit of a see you next Tuesday. So now you, it just means that now you're getting paid for it. So, 
<laughs> and so she's always managed to bring me down to earth with a hell of a bump, you know, yeah. So for you now, you're soon to be 60. Did you ever think growing up in Birmingham that this would be your life now? No way. I was only coming to Australia on a three-year contract just to get the kids out of England, just have a great experience. But then fell in love with Australia and thought, oh, my word, you'd have to be crazy not to bring your kids up in Australia if you could. It's just such a brilliant lifestyle and such a an open country. Back in the UK, there's a class system that really subliminally puts you down and keeps you in your place in many ways. And that doesn't exist in Australia. It really is way more of a meritocracy out here. And then, of course, I went on TV and started earning lots of money. And I've had a fantastic life so far. I'm 60, so I reckon I reckon hopefully I've got another three decades left in me. And I've got no desire to stop working. I just feel privileged, really. I live in a beautiful part of the world, in a beautiful part of that country, with a beautiful woman, two really smart, funny kids. And we haven't got any money worries. So as long as we keep our health... It's awesome. And when you were growing up, though, I mean, you grew up very working class. Yeah. Background. Both your parents were factory workers. Yeah. My dad worked at Standard Triumph in Coventry. My mum was a mobile hairdresser and worked at Leyland on, on the track as well. My dad was an alcoholic. When I was about five, he had to go into a mental institution to dry out. And it was probably PTSD because in the 50s for five years... He was in the Malaysian conflict in the SAS. So um, I think he saw a lot of gnarly action, basically. He saw a lot of death and destruction and violence. And so he's probably suffering from PTSD, thinking back on it. But he became a drunk and dried out in an institution. And then they put him on a foundation course. So he started becoming a mature student. And he got a scholarship to Cambridge University to read English. And um, went to Cambridge when I was 10. And that was kind of the end of the marriage, really, because I think he, you know, was just slightly, you know, an attractive older man and putting it about with all these young students, young impressionable students. And, uh, and yeah, that him and my mum grew apart. But my mum was my angel. My mum, she died in COVID a couple of years ago. I never made it back for the funeral, unfortunately. But she oh, was just... I'm sorry. That yeah, must have been... Yeah, it was really tough. Um and I still haven't really processed that. Do you know, the other day, I just, oh, I'm going to ring my mum up. I went, oh, shit, she's dead. I can't. And it just devastated me. Just, um, yeah, just the fact that you can't ring them up and share your week with them, you know. But she was an angel. She reached 80, and I think she was stuck in lockdown and just went, nah, that's it, I'm checking out. I think she went, this world is not great for me anymore. I'm going. And I think she just wanted to make her 80th birthday and then just check out, really. So, But she's a good woman. So when was the last time you spoke to your mum? Oh, I FaceTimed her the day before she died. She went pretty quickly. I, I rang her up on the Tuesday. She seemed really odd. And I spoke to my sister half an hour later who lived with her. And I went... Something's up with mum. said, oh, I think she's just a bit embarrassed about something. She's not feeling very well. I went, right, okay. And then the next day, Claire rang and said, oh, she's gone to hospital. So I FaceTimed her that night. And they said, um, because COVID was 
pretty rife at that time. They said, look, you can't come in and sit with her, Claire. And then they said, look, you actually need to come and sit with her because she's dying. So they allowed Claire to go in with a bottle of whiskey and the dog. And she sat there with the dog and a bottle of whiskey and my sister. I FaceTimed that night and the next day she died. But she said, you're just sitting here waiting for me to die, aren't you? She said, well, I can go if you want, Mum. She went, no, it's okay. And yeah, she died with half a tumbler of whiskey left and a hand on the dog's snout. And with the other hand with me and my sister's. Good way to go. So That's beautiful. Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, a long drawn out illness would have been shocking, but she went in the space of three days. So good on you, Mum. Yes. Nice exit. Oh, Dicko. Thank you for sharing that. That's okay. Anything. I'll talk to you about anything. So let's talk a bit about your dad. Yes. Complicated fella. Yeah. Because you had quite a fractured relationship with him, didn't you? Yeah, look, there's he um he sexually abused my sister. And she never forgave him for that. Even though she tried. She actually tried to forgive him. But every time she tried, he would just behave so poorly. He moved to Italy about 35 years ago and he just ran away from all of his commitments. I think he owed people money in the UK. There were a lot of dodgy relationships and he just ran away from all of it and lived in Geneva and basically became a town drunk. I really made an effort with him and I used to fly him over to London to see the kids but he was just behaved so unbelievably poorly. He would just get drunk and misbehave and just fall out with Mel and it just wasn't good. So in the end, I just said, do you know what, Dad? I am just don't think there's anything good coming out of our relationship. So I'm actually cutting you off. I don't really need you in my life. This was shortly after moving to Australia. He used to do this thing which was really bloody irritating it's a port, Geneva, and there used to be a lot of Aussie tourists there. If ever he heard an Australian accent in a bar, he would go up to them and start talking to these Aussies and say, oh, my son's dicko. And they'd go, no, why? Jeez, really? You know? And then quite often, this happened to me on four or five separate occasions, people would bail me up around Australia and say, I met your dad in Geneva, and he's a great bloke, and you need to ring him. You're a really poor son. And it used to really get me down. And one time I just broke and I said, look, you know, my dad is actually a child molester. He abused my sister. Is that the upstanding guy that you want to support? And that kind of shocked him and shut him up a bit. Yeah, I'd get people ringing me up out of the blue, telling me to phone my dad and, yeah. How outrageous, though, that some people think that that's an okay thing to do, to take it upon themselves. Yeah, I think he was quite manipulative, though. He was a real charmer. If he wanted to, he would absolutely grease the wheels and get in with you. He was very good at getting people to do stuff for him. He was a real taker, a real sociopath, actually. I know that word gets bandied around a lot, but he was a narcissist and a sociopath. And I get terrified sometimes when I find myself behaving just like him. He was a massive motivation in my life to not be like him. He never provided for our family, and I always said that's a massive thing for me. I've got to provide for my family, and I'm going to stick by I want a long-term relationship because we've never had a perfect relationship, but we've got one that lasts, and they're much better than perfect relationships. 
you know, because they don't exist. But yeah, he was uh, a real manipulator, my dad. And I hope I'm not that much like him, but I do suspect I've got traits that do show up every now and then. I you, certainly drink as much as him. Well, I wonder, is that why you drink but then don't drink to show that you're not like him? Yeah. Today, I'm going to be like my mum. No, my mum, actually, my mum could drink for England, honestly. My mum could drink a bottle of whiskey and you wouldn't know she'd had a drink. She was legendary in my family as having hollow legs. But my dad was a two-pot screamer. And it's odd because he was the alcoholic, but he was a shocking drunk. He couldn't hold his drink at all. My mum was a champion. So I don't know, really. I think I blame both of them for my dodgy liver. But socially and emotionally, they gave me very different things. You know you're nothing like your dad. It's kind of you to say that, and I do feel better for it. But if you saw him, I think you'd say, oh, I'm seeing some similarities there. Look, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I get a lot of my intellect and my humour from my dad. You know, he was a very funny, charming bloke. Plus, super smart. You know, he went. To, he got a first at Cambridge, you know, as a mature student. And you went to uni? You, you yeah, I went politics. to uni. I, yeah, I wasn't as good a studier as I should have done. I'd like to go now. It was wasted on me then. I'd love to learn now. Well, do it. Yeah. What's stopping you? Nothing's stopping me. I'd love to go back to university now and learn something. And also, I'm, I'm still fascinated by politics, believe it or not. I still put MSNBC on every day to see what Donald Trump's been up to. I'm fascinated by him. <laughs> Worst man in history. <laughs> yes. And he, I can't get enough of him. Oh, which is kind of the problem, I think, with many people. They can't get enough of him. Mm. Just finally, what brings you joy now? Hearing new songs from my artists, I just feel so blessed that these young people allow me to hear their music and to comment on it and to guide them. One of my artists, Taylor Moss, a young country artist who's amazing, she had her first number one last year. And I cried when she told me. I was like, I was gushing. I was crying down the phone. And I thought, blah, where did this come from? But it just fills me with so much joy when you work with an artist who puts their heart and soul in it and that gets recognised and it's just such an absolute buzz. There can only be one number one single that week and she was it. And you go, wow, this is the best thing ever. So I have a childlike joy about music. I really, really do. I feel so blessed in this final chapter of my working life to be allowed back into that. That is just the best thing ever. I love food. And I love cooking. I cook every single meal. And now we've got a really good vegetable garden. We've learned to grow things. We've become real country bumpkins. So this is going to sound so smug, but we try to make sure we have at least two things from the garden on our plate at every meal. And that gives you such a fantastic sense of achievement. It really does. It's just joyous, you know, just go out and pick some food and come in, put music on pour a glass of wine and start preparing food. That's just my happy time. It really is. Sounds wonderful. I'd love to come round for dinner. You'd be more than welcome, but you might have to bring your earplugs because we swear a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dicko, I love you. I love Thank you, you too, Thank you so Jess. much. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. <laughs> Dicko really is quite something. Wasn't it? Amazing how vulnerable he was and how open he was. And we had a huge hug after our chat. 
I think you saw a whole different side to Dicko. You could also hear how passionate Dicko is about nurturing new talent. You can check out his roster of musicians at Tricycle Artist Management. And he also has a podcast called Game On Mole, and there's a link for both in our show notes. Now, please, if Dicko's story did bring up some issues for you, remember help is available by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 for a safe place to talk day and night. For more big conversations like this one with Dicko, I'd love for you to subscribe and follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will never miss an episode and spread the word, tell everyone how fabulous the podcast is. And if you enjoyed this episode with Dicko, I reckon you'll enjoy my chat with Osha Ginsberg. Alcoholics call it a moment of clarity. I just woke up and went, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I can't, I can't ever do that again. And it was just super clear to me that I was no longer able to choose whether or not that happened. And it starts when I have the first drink. So I'm just going to not have the first drink. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Chris Marsh. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.